it's a time-consuming, labor-intensive process. Collecting, drying, grinding, and burning food. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Raw Safari Podcast. It's so good to have you back. I'm recording this episode immediately after visiting Niagara Falls on the American side. It's kind of crazy, but despite being from the United States, I've never visited the falls from this side before today. I've spent over a month of my life gigging on the Canadian side, so I am intimately familiar with the entire town of Niagara Falls, Ontario, but it was great to experience it from the other side. Fun fact, while it is known that the better view of the falls is in Canada, the American side has a lot to offer. I spent about an hour hiking around Goat Island, which is just beautiful and offers some incredible views of the falls and the Niagara River and her wild rapids. I'm really glad I got to make the trek. Sadly, the Buffalo Zoo and Aquarium of Niagara are both still closed due to COVID-19. I swung by the aquarium anyway, in the hopes of seeing the pinniped exhibit outside, but it was blocked off. For those that don't know, pinnipeds are a group of carnivorous mammals that include seals, sea lions, and walruses. This week's episode is the second part of my interview with Mieko Temple. If you haven't listened to the first part from last week, go ahead and hit pause on this episode until you do that. Although this part of the interview delves into some different areas of Mieko's research and also gets into her artwork, some parts of it definitely will make more sense if you've listened to last week's show. The episode starts with a great little story about the less glamorous side of Mieko's research and may or may not have me trying to convince my guest to design a tattoo for me. Much like the last episode, there were some audio issues with this interview. I did what I could to clean it up, but I apologize for the little pops you will hear throughout the conversation. Also, remember to follow Mieko on Instagram at M-I-E-K-O-T-E-M-P-L-E and at mtillustrations.com. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of my interview with Mieko Temple. Since we're talking about uh, what you just said there with the, the digestive tract starting at the stomach and ending at the rectum, how much of your world is, is revolving around poop? Oh, good question. Yeah. <laughs> so my research actually has a very strong poop component <laughs> um, and also gut component. Um, so the way that we've been looking at the influence of these different antibiotic alternatives in my studies, so we had a control diet with no antimicrobial additives included. We had a positive control, which was, a, which was an antibiotic at a prophylactic level, so that non-therapeutic low dose. And then we had the probiotic blend and then also the essential oil blend. So those four different diets were what we were feeding. In order to see what influence that had, we took gut samples, so uh, small intestine, specifically the ileum. The small intestine is broken up into three portions. There's the duodenum, which is the first about third the jejunum, which is about the second third, and then the ileum, which is about the third third. And that is the highest absorption point of the small intestine. That section has a very different 
cellular as well as like job performance difference than the other sections of the small intestine. And so that section, we wanted to look at what microbes are living there and which ones would be different depending on the different diet that the, the chicken was eating. And then we also took samples from the cecum, uh, which is plural for cecum. And that is a kind of branch off from the digestive tract that is kind of like a little bacterial microbe sac. And it allows for microbial fermentation of food after it's been absorbed from the gut by the small intestine. So the small intestine's job is to digest and absorb. And after it's absorbed, the the animal typically doesn't have a lot of opportunity to continue using that. So after the absorption point, that's when microbes get to do the bulk of their business. And so that occurs in a lot of bird species in the cecum, especially in uh, granivorous and um, uh, herbivorous species of birds like chickens and other poultry and other uh, galliformes. Um, that's like pheasants and turkeys. All of these are, are herbivorous. Specifically, they are typically granivorous. Um, and so the cecum is a very densely populated, diverse location of different microbes that take advantage of these leftover nutrients and they, they ferment them through bacterial fermentation methods. Um, and then they create things like short-chain fatty acids, which you might be a little bit more familiar with the word volatile fatty acids, but net, typically now they're called short-chain fatty acids. And it's in the name. They are fatty acids that typically have a short chain after them. What does that mean? It's basically a, a bacterial fermentation product that can be used as an energy source. Um, and then these microbes also make a lot of the B vitamins that we are so dependent on. Um, you might take a B vitamin supplement. Um, if, you, if your nutritionist or your doctor suggested you need more of these, these are something that we as humans cannot make ourselves. These are fermented and created by bacteria. And then in the large intestine, which is the last section of the gut, those short chain fatty acids and those B vitamins and a little bit of water can be absorbed in the large intestine. And that's how we can take advantage of those microbial products. So we wanted to look at the composition of those microbes in the ileum and the cecum to assess how do those communities of microbes change depending on what antimicrobial feed additive was in the feed? And so that was kind of the focus of my study. However, that means that I get to deal with a lot of different gut content. And let me tell you, Sika don't smell good. <laughs> they do not. Um, and you might be familiar with Sika because rabbits and koalas have Sika and they create something called Sikatrophs which are a unique kind of poop that is very micro-dense and rich. And uh, rabbits will eat cecotrophs to get those nutrients that the microbes create and then also repopulate their gut with those microbes. And then koalas will feed those cecotrophs, also called the, the pap. The mother koala will feed the pap to the baby koala, to the joey, and that helps start populating the joey's gut with the correct microbes to eat the very fibrous eucalyptus because all of that fiber takes a lot of digestive energy, mostly from microbes in order to break it down. And that's why koalas sleep a lot so much is because they have very low energy diets. So it takes a lot of energy to digest all of that. Um, but so 
those are good examples of Sika doing a lot of work so that the animal can get the nutrients from those microbes. Um, so those Sika don't smell good, but because of all those microbes, and that's where I get a lot of my, my smelliest samples. Um, but my favorite, my favorite story about animal poop for my research is that I got to dry down chicken poop in an oven, which was very fragrant. And then I got to take the dried poop and use a coffee grinder to grind it up into a consistent uh, dust size so that I could then burn the poop <laughs> in what's called a bomb calorimeter to assess how much energy was left over in the poop to basically determine how efficient were these chickens at digesting and absorbing energy out of their food. So I tested the food by drying the food, grinding the food, burning the food to get the energy content of the food, and then did the same exact thing with the poop, and then food minus poop equals energy extracted. But yeah, it was a it's a time-consuming, labor-intensive process of collecting, drying, grinding, and burning poop. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite glamorous. <laughs> Guys, if you want to have a great time and a lot of good poop stories, go into animal nutrition. Wow. Wow. Wow, that's really all I can say. <laughs> that is that is incredible. Um, okay, so you're you're clearly very scientifically minded, let's say, and you know lots of stuff. So I, I guess from a person who is not completely that way, although I think science is incredibly important and have really worked to educate myself more over the last couple of years because I mostly flirted with girls in, in classes in high school and college. <laughs> um, so, you know, trying to catch up a little bit. And what I'm wondering is you're talking about essential oils. And I mainly thought that essential oils were pyramid schemes, if, if you will. And to hear you, the, the very scientifically minded individual I am speaking to, talk about essential oils without even winking at me while saying it kind of surprises me a little bit. Uh, care to expound on that at all? And what have you found so far? Yes. I'm really grateful for the questions that you've come up with both prior to talking with me and then also on the fly because I take all these things for granted because I've been working with them for so long and so closely that it's just like second nature and it, it's not something that I would even consider sometimes to talk about. So thank you. That's a great point. Um, so the answer is yes and no in that essential oils, like there's a lot of stuff around essential oils. Um, and I will not at all pretend that all of them are going to solve your aches and pains. And like, you will never need to go to a mechanic if you sprinkle spearmint oil on your car. Like, this is <laughs> nonsense. Don't do that. It'll probably mess with your paint, honestly. Um, so <laughs> to answer your question, yeah, there is a lot of either pseudoscience or not very strong science surrounding essential oils. And so I'm not going to tout that they are an end-all, be-all, amazing cure-all. Don't go and drink this stuff. Don't do, don't do the essential oils, kids. Don't, don't. <laughs> Instead, look into scientific articles that are peer-reviewed. I'm going to say it again. Peer-reviewed. This is very important. If you're going to be reading scientific literature, peer-reviewed means that other scientists have read the, this article and said, this is legit science. This is going to check out. And of course, at the end of the day, take everything that humans produce with a grain of salt because we are fallible. 
But after my little soapbox moment, um, some essential oils have been studied to see if they have antimicrobial properties. And so some of these essential oils out there do, in fact, have antimicrobial properties, which means that they are able to, similar to antibiotics, limit or inhibit the growth of certain bad, quote unquote, bacteria. And so similar to how antibiotics work, where if you introduce an antibiotic to a potentially pathogenic bacteria and it kills the bacteria or limits the bacteria's growth, these antimicrobial properties of essential oils and plant extracts can also act in a similar way. And so examples of essential oils that do this would be a lot of the ones in the, in the mint family. So that's going to be like mint extracts, basil, oregano, rosemary. These are all within the greater mint family. And so they all tend to have some level of antimicrobial property to them. Now, does this mean that that's helpful if you put some basil extract in your coffee or your salad dressing? Probably not in terms of like the concentration and the way that our digestive tract works. Um, it's probably those, those special properties are probably going to get destroyed in your stomach, which is a very powerful acidic environment. Um, so you probably are only just going to mentally feel better and the placebo effect is strong with this one, but Hang on for a second. So the way that we use it in our study is it's actually encapsulated. So what does that mean? It basically, think about how like a pill that you take has a capsule around it and then the contents of the, like the medicine contents are actually within that capsule. Similarly, we have a capsule around the essential oil so that it survives the acidic stomach environment and can actually get to the target site, which is the ileum and the cecum, because that's where all those microbes are living. There's some microbes that live in the stomach, but it's such a harsh environment that there's very few, and those aren't the, the species that we're trying to target. We're trying to eliminate bad bacteria in the ileum and the cecum because those are sites where there are a lot of different health-related gut issues. And so those essential oils, that we're trying to get them to target there. So circling back to your original point, do not trust essential oils in multi-level marketing schemes to fix your entire life. Read scientific literature to be more educated on the studies that are out there that are on them. And just be curious and inquisitive and critical thinking about your world. If you think that there's a question that you need answered, it's probably been asked. Go find the answer. Science has done a lot to try and study that. Awesome. Can you hold on for just one second? Yeah. Hi again. Hello. This is Lexi. <gasps> Hi, Miss. She has just been wanting attention and whining, but didn't want to come in here. She's been sitting right outside, even with the door open, and just come pay attention to me. And I felt bad. What a sweet girl. Yeah, she's my girl. Hi, Lexi. Yeah. Sorry, but I just, I knew you would get it. So I just needed to interrupt. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure yeah. this will all be cut out of the podcast, but hey, whatever. <laughs> I am enjoying myself. So thank you. Yeah. I, um, I recently attended an online um, pangolin conference. Oh, cool. Yeah, Save the Pangolins and um, Animalia teamed up. And I mm -hmm. guess they do one every year that's like a one-day conference in person, but they made it digital this year and made it open to the public. So I, I attended. And it was so funny. I was so amazed. There were two sessions with live pangolins in them. And when they announced it, my thought was, 
cares? It's on a screen. Like seeing pangolins is incredible. I've seen pangolins a couple of times now. There are two zoos that exhibit them in the country, and I've I've been there uh, to both of those. That's Memphis and Brookfield in Chicago. And then uh, I also have gotten to go behind the scenes and and meet a pangolin at Turtleback Zoo, which was incredible in New Jersey. Uh, so I was like, who who care? You know, what's the difference between watching a pre recorded video on your screen and watching a live pangolin on your screen? And weirdly, the answer was everything. Yeah. The minute the live pangolin showed up, I was so happy and I was so oh. excited and my heart just, and I was like, I had just watched an entire, they showed a movie about pangolins uh-huh. and it was like a normal movie. And then a live pangolin showed up on the screen and somehow everything was different and it was hilarious. I, I definitely can understand that though. Cause like there's like a difference between the distance that it feels like a cinematic piece has compared to a live stream like seeing Lexi with you it was like oh she's here and versus like oh look at the the kakapo and the beautiful New Zealand mountains like like it's it's so different so different but I would have never expected that until (laughs) until experiencing it and actually it was really cool the uh the last day or not last day but one of the last times of the conference um there was a baby pangolin that they bottle fed on the screen. And the best part was they're really slow eaters. So the dude just kept talking. Like at first he explained what he was doing. And then he's just like talking and he's like, yeah, you know, and I do this and my foundation does that. And the whole time there's just a little pangolin with a bottle. <laughs> oh, it was incredible. Yeah. Shout oh. out to, to Save the Pangolin and uh, Animalia for doing an incredible thing. Yeah. If you want a great account to follow that has really consistent pangolin content, Libasa Wildlife Preserve. Um, I can send you the exact handle afterwards, but um, that'd be great. They are doing a great job with wildlife conservation and rehabilitation. They are a sanctuary and a re- rehabilitation site, and they I've donated to them the art proceeds that I I collect through my art. Um, they have been one of my donation recipients because. They've been doing tons of work to stop the wildlife black market trade of especially pangolins, but other wildlife as well. Um, and they've had many a bottle feeding of pangolin babies on their, their oh, account. Nice. So if you need a little bit more baby pangolin bottle feeding content to brighten your day, that's a great one. I think we all need that. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm actually, uh, so red pandas and sea turtles uh, are kind of my two favorite species, along with like binturongs and tree kangaroos. Those are my, those are my top four. Um, but the, uh, the red panda network just recently started some pangolin projects as well. And, and oh. trying to, and I, it is just made my heart sore because I already love red pandas so much and I already donate. Uh, I'm a regular donor to, you know, red panda network and such. And to see them taking on the, the pangolin crisis is, is amazing. And I'm hoping to get to do an episode of the pod with uh, either someone from the, the conference that I attended or maybe like one of the keepers at Brookfield that deals with the, the pangolins. I'm not uh-huh. sure that I'll be able to pull that off right away, but I'm, I'm trying, I'm reaching, I'm going to be reaching out soon Hopefully. to try to happen because pangolins are just incredible. And so many people know them. Yeah. I still, when I, I, when I say that the number one most trafficked animal in the world is a pangolin, it sounds like a joke, but people still ask me all the time, penguins? Who traffics penguins? <laughs> no. Oh, pangolin. Pangolin. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I need to work on my pronunciation and slowing down a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to me. And I'm, I'm really proud of Red Panda Network for 
taking that on since they already have such a daunting task in trying to make red pandas. Yeah, we actually have two. We have a breeding pair of red pandas um, in the city just north of where I'm doing my research. So in um, Atascadero, there is the Charles Paddock Zoo, which is the smallest AZA accredited zoo. They have a Malaysian tiger and they have two red pandas that I don't think they've had any successful breeding. Like they've, they, they're a breeding pair, but I don't think they've had any successful births yet. But right. hopefully. Do you happen to know the names of the red pandas? I do not. I do okay. not remember them. The reason I ask is that name sounds familiar to me. And I know that some of the pandas that were born at Philly have gone out to California. And I'm wondering. I do know that so just redid their entire red panda exhibit. Awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of positive things for red pandas going on at that teeny tiny zoo. It's so cute. Makes me so happy. I am totally looking on my iPad to try to see if I can find that out. And I'm not <laughs> ignoring you. I just get very distracted when red pandas come up. I, I apologize. That's okay. <laughs> I really, really, really love them. I just checked and talked about how small the world is. Um. My buddy, Kumbi, who is uh, the male red panda at the Philly Zoo right now, and his then uh, mate, um, Spark, mm -hmm. had two cubs, I want to say two years ago, named Ping, Jing, and Yaren. And I was there literally on the day they debuted in their exhibit, and, oh. and I, I, I love them. And then they were picked up by the Charles Paddock Zoo, and they are two of your red pandas right now. Awesome. So the, the two cubs then, siblings? They're siblings, yeah. Okay, so I thought that they were a breeding pair. My mistake. Good to know. Oh, that's so, that is such a small world. So you guys actually have three pandas now because you also have somebody named Pabu living there. Okay, thank you. The next time that you go to that that zoo, just just say hi to them for me. Uh, tell them that John loves them. I will. <laughs> I have baby pictures of them, oh. and uh, I'm sure they'll remember me. <laughs> oh. Yeah, oh, that's so cool. So where are you when you're doing your research? Great question. At Cal Poly on our campus, we have many different research facilities. So one of them is a teaching and research facility for poultry. So we have the Cal Poly Poultry Unit. So we have commercial barns for teaching students kind of in a microcosm sense. Like this is how you raise commercial broiler chickens. This is how you raise and take care of commercial layer chickens. And so we have a separate barn, which is specifically a research barn. And that was where I was doing the actual hands-on animal portion of my research and then we have a lab where we were doing more of the um, analysis side um, analysis being the fancy science word for drying grinding and burning poop <laughs> <laughs> so we have a whole bunch of fancy equipment that um, is actually very old and temperamental but allows us to do these different research uh practices to gain the information that we need to answer some of the questions that we have. And then the last portion of my research, which is to extract DNA, microbial DNA from those gut samples. So basically, I take a section of the gut, I take the contents of the gut out, and then using special scientific equipment, we break open the microbes that live in the gut. And we extract the microbes DNA and then you can sequence that DNA and say these are specifically the species and strains of microbes that were living there 
And so there's a separate lab that we do that called the CAB, the Center for Applied Biotechnology. And so I am very thankful to have the access and opportunity to, to spend time in all these different locations. Oh, that's uh, that's cool that you have such a great place. It kind of, as you start talking about sequencing DNA and such, I'm a little concerned that we're going to have a microbial Jurassic Park happening here, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> we're not reincarnating anything, okay, thankfully. Okay, good, good. We're just kind of cataloging. It, it's <laughs> like if you were going to, to transcribe a movie or something, you're just taking the the written component of what you're reading and you're saying, okay, because because these 15 sentences string together, obviously we're looking at a copy of all creatures great and small or something <laughs> instead of instead of actually reincarnating some of these microbes that's good some of which will be bad microbes and some of them will be good microbes so well there you go yeah. if you ever need to write a science fiction book there you go you've got bad microbes cloned versus good microbes that you clone and some good fodder right there yeah <laughs> it's exciting stuff you said, and I think, I don't know if you were just talking about your research or in general, but you said that stomachs don't actually have a lot of microbes in them, that that's more in the gut area. Is that true across species or is that just for poultry or how, how does that work? Good question. So in animals that have multi-chambered stomachs, so ruminants, cows are a great example, um, pseudo-ruminants are, or camelids, um, those are another example of having some number of chambers, not necessarily four, like the definition of a ruminant. Um, but all of these animals that have chambered stomachs, one of those chambers is a true stomach. And the definition of a true stomach is that it has a certain composition to it. So it has the like the fundus and like a, a few other types of, of um, cells or epithelium that line the stomach and are consistent with how a true stomach functions and looks. Um, and the definition of a true stomach is typically based on humans or other single stomach species. Um, and then those are then looked at across different species. And that true stomach, which has a lot of hydrochloric acid, HCl, um, and pepsinogen, which turns into pepsin, that environment is very, very acidic. And so because of that high acidity from the hydrochloric acid, that is a very inhospitable environment to most microbes. And so you're going to see a lot less diversity and quantity of microbes in the true stomach section. But if you're talking about other chambers in the stomach, for example, the rumen of a cow or other bovid species or ruminant, that is teeming with bacteria and is actually the greatest section of microbial diversity and fermentation and activity. And ruminants rely heavily on the rumen for general gut health, but also digestion and, and access to nutrients. If a, if a cow did not have the rumen component of its digestive tract, uh, it likely would not survive. There is so much that the microbes in that section of the, the chamber or the stomach do in order for that animal to then be able to absorb those nutrients. Because grass in itself, unless cellulose and hemicellulose are broken down in grass and the other plants that ruminants and animals eat, it's not very nutritious. There's very little accessible nutrients. But with the help of microbial fermentation, 
so much more of those nutrients are actually available to the animal. And so that's one of the digestive strategies that are out there is rumination and, and relying on the microbial diversity and activity in the rumen. Very cool. So that's something unique to those species, which is really cool. How about humans? Um, do, do we have a lot of microbes in our uh, stomachs or is it also in our, um, is it just in our, our intestines and such? Good question. Humans do have microbes present in, in their stomach, um, in our stomach. Um, <laughs> but as I like exclude myself from this class of, of animals, um, yes. So we do have bacteria in microbes in our, in our stomachs. But again, it's still a very acidic environment. So we're not going to have a huge diversity or quantity. Most of our microbes are going to be in the colon or the large intestine. And that's where most of our microbial fermentation is going to happen in a healthy digestive tract situation. And that's where we're going to get those short-chain fatty acids, those B vitamins, and a little bit of water resorption happening in the colon. Um, when you start talking about different digestive tract uh, disorders or issues um, in, in humans as well as other animals, you might see that in the small intestine. Um, and you might see that happening with a, an imbalance or a dysbiosis is the, the fancy science word, where you have um, too many of a certain type of microbe. And it could be any, but just in particular, like the microbe A, there's too many of them than would be in a healthy situation. And so microbe A is now actually being pathogenic when it might normally be helpful in a healthy situation. If there's too many of them, now they are pathogenic and causing issues. Um, there's evidence to suggest that maybe it's that dysbioses are involved in some of the many different gut issues that we hear about. Um, I'm not going to speak to whether or not that's true because I don't do humans. Sure. Um, but there is a very strong relationship between gut health, the balance of good and bad bacteria in your gut, and how that influences the host the person, the chicken, the tiger, whatever. Thank you for that. Uh, so clearly, as I said before, you are a huge nerd. And I just, I love that because I'm, we're all about nerds on this podcast. But I understand that you are also artistic uh, from, gosh, that was such a bad like radio transition. I hate myself for doing that. <laughs> I, I'm just, wow. Okay, so let's try this again. Looked at your Instagram, loved your art. Tell me all about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate the compliment. Um, I have always just had kind of an artistic side to me. Um, it could be because I'm left-handed, so I'm always in my right mind. But um, <laughs> but I've, I've always enjoyed and had a very strong affinity for being able to draw animals. I have had a lifelong struggle with trying to draw people. They look um, not like people. And so I've really stuck to just drawing uh, animals. And I just have a very easy knack for being able to draw the right proportions and so they come out looking very ethereal and kind of interesting and different um i use a lot of different lines and geometric shapes and patterns to try and bring out these different unique uniquenesses of animals and i rely a lot on my knowledge of animal anatomy and physiology so i know where the bones of these animals are i know the muscles and the different muscle groupings and insertion points and origins. And so I can tell how these muscles move, where they are, how they translate to what that looks like on the outside of an animal. And I use that to create these unique patterns. 
I've had some people reach out to me and say in, a, in an appreciative sense that my art looks like a lot of different indigenous people's art. And I just always try and make sure that I'm very clear that I, whenever I'm looking into an animal and I want to draw them, I don't look at the art or the culture of where that animal is, their natural habitat is, because I don't want any possible mistaken appropriation of that culture. And so all of these these patterns and designs that I make are unique to the animal and the natural habitat that that animal comes from. So different um, vegetative flora that are in that area, if there's different very cool variegated leaves or something, or like a banana palm or something that has very interesting striping, I might include that in the animal, the animal's background. Um, but I always make sure that these patterns are reflective and honoring of the animal and its natural habitat and anatomy. It is so cool. They're, they just look amazing. Not knowing any of that, I was incredibly impressed. <laughs> Thank you. And now, now hearing that, I'm even even more obsessed. That's that's amazing. Uh, do you first of all, where can people find the art? Awesome. Yeah. So my art is mainly on my Instagram on, um, if you just look up Mieko, M-I-E-K-O temple, um, that is my art Instagram, but you can also find my art at my Etsy, which is also under my name, Mieko temple. Um, and then I just launched a website, MT illustrations, um, uh, which is kind of a gallery slash shop option for you to check out the art that I've done look at updates on what I have been creating and why the organizations that I've been donating to, um, because every sale that I make and every commission that I complete, 20% of that money goes towards different conservation uh, organizations, because just as much as I am, am, I am a big supporter of celebrating these animals, I also want to make sure that they are around for future generations. So conservation organizations are doing a lot to make sure that these animals are sustained and are um, preserved for the integrity of our earth and for other people to experience in the future. It's awesome. I'm, I'm hitting up your website right now. I've seen the stuff on Insta, obviously, but uh, this is crazy. Thank you. <laughs> you do some really tense work. And of course, you know, the, the question I have to ask, because in my world, it all comes back to this. I've seen some amazing turtle art that you have done. But have you done or considered a red panda piece yet? I drew one actually as like a quick little sketch for a friend. Um, but it's not on the website, which is a darn shame. So that's that's an oversight on my part. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but yes, I actually do want to do a true official red panda piece. Um, and that is on my queue of things to do um eventually and you'll probably see that i have a giant panda on there but where is the red panda there's the original panda not the poser no. <laughs> <laughs> true <laughs> i will absolutely 100 percent commit to you to buying a sticker and a print if you do a cool red panda picture oh my gosh well i will make sure to follow through on that yes, i will be <laughs> excited you. to see it because i just your art is is incredible I'm actually in the process of trying to figure out, I want to get a, a red panda tattoo, Ooh. but I want it to be something very specific. I don't want it to just be like one of my photos or like a realistic uh, thing. Um, I kind of am interested in getting like a line drawing type thing done. Very cool, yes. I have it in my head and I am really not artistic when it comes to that kind of stuff. Music, yes, but but not, I mean, I tried to draw my idea of it once and it, um, 
we just put it to you this way. I have a five-year-old uh, son, and he and I collaborated on a drawing once. And you cannot tell which parts he drew and which parts I drew. <laughs> and yes, I was not. <laughs> well, uh, good news for you is that I have worked on a couple different uh, tattoo designs. Um, so I've been able to translate my art to tattoo designs. But the people have not actually gone and gotten the tattoos yet. So I wish that were the case so I could show you some examples. But the commitment is there and the, the intention is there. Um, so maybe we can talk about that sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, um, that's awesome. I love, I love everything about this. This has been an incredible interview. You are knowledgeable and fun and I really appreciate it. Uh, I think that's all I've got. Uh, unless you had anything else you wanted to discuss. I never actually answered your question about what were my favorite animals to work with. Oh my goodness, you're right. That was like an hour and a half ago. Goodness, <laughs> thank you for remembering. I didn't do a very good job of circling back to that last <laughs> Um, I personally am a huge giraffe and Okapi fan. Look at that shirt. That is adorable. My friend screen printed this. So I absolutely love this shirt. It is one of my favorite possessions. I dream come true. The last day of my fellowship at the San Diego Zoo, I was actually at the safari park that day. And we, my coworkers were so kind. They made sure that I got a chance to meet and feed an Okapi because that has been my dream is to get a chance to say hi to and get a little, little pet in action on there. Mm -hmm. Their big velvety ears and adorable faces. Oh, so that was so special. I'd say giraffes and Okapi for sure. Um, and a new addition to my list of favorites are eye eyes. Um, okay. one of my favorite individuals was Aloka, who is the newest II baby addition at the San Diego Zoo. And so he, we got to work with him from a nutritional standpoint because he was a little baby and sometimes, um, they just need a little bit of extra help. His mama was doing a great job, but he just needed a boost. And so we were working very closely with the primate team and I love him to pieces. He's so cute. I have, I have baby pictures of that guy. Oh my gosh. And eye eyes are just so under underappreciated because they're just kind of funky. And like, they're just, they're kind of like pugs. You're like, oh man, that's so wild looking that it's adorable. <laughs> so, oh, I just love his little face. And especially like as when animals are babies, they're even so, they're even cuter. So he was just so precious. So that, that was probably, those are probably my favorites that I got to work with. But just honestly, Every time I meet a new animal and like I get a chance to work with them individually, um, it's so special. And when I when I say work with, I want to clarify that I am not an animal care specialist, so I am not in there with them by myself or hands on with them at all. Um, the only times that I've been hands on with animals is either if they are uh, properly restrained or anesthetized um, in order to do what's called a body condition score, and that's a thing in nutrition where we are trying to assess the fat and muscle deposition and development in an animal. Um, and so if they are under muscled um, or over, over, they have too much fat, they're obese or something, that's something that we can determine by visually and physically assessing those muscle and body fat definition um, situations. And so we assess on a scale of one, which is emaciated to nine, which is obese the general visual and physical health of those animals. Um, and that's a good tool in helping us 
determine do we need weight gain, weight loss, other sorts of nutritional intervention. So because of that, I've had a chance to have hands-on many different species because we've worked closely with the veterinary and animal care staff teams to perform these body condition scores. Um, and so I got a chance to do that with Aloka shortly after he was born. Um, and then with the tapers, which was so awesome, um, and visually assessing that on rhinos and giraffes, it's just been so, so interesting and incredible. So that was probably my favorite part because how many people can say that they've gotten a chance to be hands-on with so many different exotic species and to both do it in this scientific example or, or situation where we're gaining more information about the healthcare of this animal. And also it gets to fulfill a little piece of my heart. <laughs> sure. I've, I've had some really, really cool experiences through people I know and stuff. Um, I've been hands-on with dozens of animals, everything ah, from red so pandas cool. to okapis to lions and rhinos and stuff. And, um, and yeah, it's just uh, amazing. Got a high five from a binturong, you know, ah, like they're so cool. It just makes your heart, sing you know and and um it's one of those things too where i find that the more like the zoo and uh conservation world is so small and so interconnected mm -hmm. and it's it's amazing just as a dude who posts photographs i don't even use a, a dslr <laughs> but just as a person who got a following from my iphone and like you know mediocre camera pics that that i i think i take good pics but like I'm not a pro, you know, and suddenly I have over 3000 followers and I have keepers that I talk to regularly about their animals. And I have, you know, met people like, like, uh, Caitlin who introduced me to you and, and we're having this great chat. And the idea of doing this podcast literally just came to me because I was like, I talk to these amazing people just because I'm a guy who likes animals and, and got a little bit of a following. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm a nerd. Like I said, I'm a drummer. That's, that's my connection to animals. <laughs> I, I, I play the drums and that gets to take me to a lot of cool places. Yeah. And uh, it's just an amazing community. And, yeah. And I'm just I'm so grateful for stuff. Like you said, like how they made sure. And you just got some hand on a copy time. You know, that, that's, that's pretty incredible. So, it was really special. That's awesome. I'm so glad I got to talk to you though about animal nutrition because a lot of people just even outside of the pet world, don't realize how important animal nutrition is to the overall health and welfare of animals. And that it's, it's also just kind of an underappreciated field in the zoo world, where I think, I believe the last count that I knew of was that 20 AZA accredited institutions have staff nutritionist positions. And these are people that either have a, a residency uh, specialization in nutrition after going to vet school, but most of them actually have done a PhD or a master's degree in a background area of nutrition. Um, and, and so they aren't veterinarians. They're instead people who have studied nutrition in a very scientifically focused area. Not saying that medicine is not, but medicine has a slightly different perspective and approach than doing controlled experiments. Um, and so having that different perspective and contribution to the animal health side of things is really important, which is coming from somebody who is eventually going to go to veterinary school and still try and make sure that animal nutrition is a very strong component of her future career. Hi, that's me. 
<laughs> That's actually, that was the last question I, 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 I had listed that I literally skipped over because I got excited to ask you about poop uh, was, so what is your deal? What are, what are your goals? What's next for you? And, and when, when I, you know, when we talk again in, in a couple of years, hopefully before then, but when we talk again in a couple of years, what are you going to be doing? Great question. And I appreciate you asking that. I have had a long time to think about this and have waffled on what I want to do because I'm the kind of person who wants to do it all. Um, and so I had really struggled with deciding on pursuing a PhD after my master's is over because I want to stay so closely connected to animal nutrition. And because of the way the field is in terms of exotic animal nutrition, a lot of people go through a PhD route to participate that way. But I find my greatest joy and greatest excitement and challenge, too, is when I've been involved in veterinary medicine. So working so closely with the vet team at the San Diego Zoo and the Safari Park, seeing that collaboration both within the team and then with the nutritional services department and the animal care staff, it really inspired me to not turn away from my original dream and goal of veterinary medicine. That this master's has only strengthened and um, affirmed my love for vet med. And it's not because I've disliked my master's experience. I've loved every minute of it, challenges and, uh, and ups and downs and all. Um, but it's helped me realize that this background in nutrition I have now can be so well suited to making sure that veterinarians elsewhere can have a stronger background in nutrition. Um, I wouldn't say that vet school doesn't teach nutrition. That's not true at all. Nutrition is a big focus in vet school. But because veterinarians are going to be wearing so many hats out there, nutrition isn't going to be their primary cap. And so as having worked with life, like animal nutritionists at the Safari Park and, and the San Diego Zoo, these people have many caps, but one of them primarily being serving these animals from a nutritional perspective and, and context. And so I want to make sure that other institutions out there that maybe don't have nutritionists on staff, that they still have that support and that um, skill set available to them. So I want to be a veterinarian for exotic animals, but I also want to make sure that their nutrition is just as highly prioritized as their welfare and their overall health care. I like how you said that you want to do it all, but you've rounded it down. But then your answer of what you've rounded it down to is being an exotic vet who also changes the entire perspective of the veterinary <laughs> industry. That's amazing. Good for you. I love that. That is that is such an incredible goal. You can tell from your, like I said, from your Instagram that you're just such a passionate person. And uh, boy, did that just prove it. Thank you. <laughs> People need to be passionate and want and go after, you know, big goals. Trying to change the world one art piece and scientific caption at a time. I try and fit in as many science facts and research conservation, conservation research info as possible so that people get a little bit of education every time they see something beautiful. It's amazing. I love that so much. I think we should leave it there. Wow, wasn't that awesome? Mieko was such a fun person to interview, and I'm so thankful for the almost two hours she spent chatting with me. One of my goals with this podcast is to not just talk about animals, but to do so with inspirational people, and Mieko is definitely the definition of that. 
You can find Mieko online at M-I-E-K-O-T-E-M-P-L-E on Instagram and mtillustrations.com. Talk to you next week. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.